Today we finish up our sermon series, Real Faith, by looking at the 1993 blockbuster hit, Jurassic Park. We also listen to a reading from the Psalms to see what God might be saying to us through these film, through these verses. Listen to Psalm 8. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are humans that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You've given them dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen and also beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Would you please pray with me? Lord of all, we give you thanks for this day. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be holy and pleasing in your sight. Let's learn more about how your son Jesus lived so that we may go and do likewise. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I have to confess something to you all. I'm not a big movie guy. I know that might sound crazy, but I really don't watch movies all that often. I'm either one of those season-long kind of television show guys, long-term storyline, or give me great characters in fun situations for 22 minutes. I like twists and turns or falling in love with characters, and I find that movies often don't have that sweet spot of time to do either to the degree that I enjoy. So I won't lie to you all, I wasn't really all that excited to participate in this sermon series. <laughs> But, as I hope you have all seen over the last four weeks, there is a connection that movies can make that hold up a mirror to our modern society and shows us what our day-in, day-out lives sometimes are incapable of seeing. Then, when you pair those movies with ancient scripture, some awfully big truths can be revealed. Whether it's the refugee crisis of the swimmers, or the illustration of the plight of women through Barbenheimer, we've seen the, the power of stories on display here. Quite frankly, very few stories have gripped the world in the last 40 years as deeply as Jurassic Park. Now, I picked Jurassic Park for three reasons. First, it's one of the most popular movies of all time. When adjusted for inflation, it is the fourth highest grossing film in the last 40 years. So there's a pretty good chance that you've seen it before. But second, even if you haven't, the premise is pretty simple to understand, right? Scientists create dinosaurs, bring them back to life, they put them in a park, and then, they go, then something goes wrong, and they escape, and then everything just goes bad, right? Pretty simple thing to understand. And then third... Picking Jurassic Park meant I got to put dinosaurs in the pulpit with me. <laughs> because who doesn't love dinosaurs, right? Who doesn't love dinosaurs? They are these unseen, monstrous creatures who shared our world. 
but we've never actually seen them. Dinosaurs are fascinating. We have so much evidence of what they were like and how their world was, and yet there's so much we still don't know. So these creatures coming back to life makes for some very interesting storytelling. But honestly, I picked this movie without much of a clue of a direction on where I was going to go with a sermon. So I sat down with my wife, which this is one of her favorite movies, so it was like the 15th or 20th time we had done this. We turned on Jurassic Park, and I looked for some nugget, right? Some scene which really speaks to not just the spirit of the movie, but something that this 30-year-old movie might have to tell us today. And I gotta tell you, I found lots of powerful moments. There's a lot in this movie. There's a scene where the, where the paleontologist comes across a sick triceratops and, and they're amazed with childlike wonder at its eyes, at its horns, and even at its breathing. There's the terror that is inflicted by the T-Rex haunting the crew outside of the enclosure. There's the explanation of how Jurassic Park came to be and the wonder of seeing, seeing a baby dinosaur born mixed with the horror on Dr. Alan Grant's face when he realizes that the di baby dinosaur he's holding is a velociraptor. And there's even perhaps the most famous scene from the movie. When the crew first arrives on Jurassic Park, they're still not 100% sure what they're doing there. And they've spent their lives dedicated to studying dinosaurs. And for the first time, they see the miraculous Brachiosaurus and it brings them to their knees in wonder. All great scenes. All with different lessons that we could have taken away. But honestly, it was an unexpected scene that grabbed me this time. I didn't foresee this one. No special effects. No dinosaurs. It was a dark room. They're just slide projectors. Doctors Alan Grant, Ellie Sattler, and Ian Malcolm are having lunch with the park founder, John Hammond, and his company's lawyer. And again, these projections across the room had pictures and graphs showing how successful the park might be. And Hammond and his lawyer are talking about the park with the lawyer particularly excited about how much money it could make. We could charge $2,000 or $10,000 for tickets. It doesn't matter. People are going to pay it. They're both laughing when Dr. Malcolm interjects at the line, the lack of humility before nature that's being displayed here staggers me. After some pushback from the lawyer, he continues in this fascinating dialogue. I'm not going to act it out, although I might do it a little bit, but <laughs> says, I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power you're using here. It didn't require any discipline to attain it. You read what others have done, and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you didn't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses to accomplish something as fast as you could. Before you knew it, you had. You patented it, packaged it, and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. This caused my pastor years to perk up a little bit. John Hammond replies, Our scientists have done things which nobody has ever done before. And then, the money line. Dr. Malcolm replies, Yeah. But your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't just stop to think if they should. This dialogue, this interchange, is a classic example of this tension that exists between hard sciences, you know, biology, chemistry, genetics, all those things, 
versus soft science, things like psychology, sociology, philosophy, and yes, religion. The question of could we versus should we. For a long time, science and religion have often been at odds. Those two seemingly incompatible fields couldn't seem to find a way to coexist. Religion would try to suppress science. Science would try to disprove religion. But what is so often missed in these discussions is that these two aspects of life, these two spheres of influences, these two ways of looking at the world need each other. Absolutely need each other. I've been reading Rain Wilson's book called Soul Boom, and in it, he talks about how faith traditions and spirituality help us understand the why that exists beyond the how of science. He writes that if science leads us to create an atomic bomb, religion shows us that peace is the ultimate goal. If technology helped create tremendous advances in transportation energy and construction, a wise moral imperative tells us that the resulting CO2 in the atmosphere will be devastating to our species and thousands of others and must be limited for the good of our descendants. You see, science and religion, they're not in opposition. They're asking completely different questions. Science is the how. Spirituality is the why. Science is the whether or not they could, and spirituality is the whether or not they should. And our world has often had problems when one tries to be the other or flat out ignores the other. In Jurassic Park, scientists ignore the chaotic nature of life, unleashing living and breathing of creatures, assuming that they can be controlled. Even down to their reproductive tendencies, they have little to no regard for the power of the spirit of life within these animals. But again, as Dr. Malcolm says, life finds a way. An ecological crisis created by man's lack of humility towards nature and unending hubris. Good thing it's just a movie, right? That doesn't, that doesn't happen in real life. It was, it was, there's nothing like that that happens. It's just a movie. Look, I already hinted at it in that quote from Soul Boom, but we ourselves are facing an ecological crisis. No, there aren't dinosaurs, but instead man's hubris has run roughshod since the Industrial Revolution leading to an ever closer annihilation of our planet. And look, I'm not going to stand up here and say that things like the internal combustion engine or modern manufacturing and advances in modern agriculture are inherently bad. No way. They're not. They absolutely have greatly improved humankind's quality of life and have paved the way for things like modern medicine, safer and easier access to food, and that sweet, sweet invention of air conditioning. <laughs> However, it's actually been science that has been the first one to raise its hand and say, uh, hey everyone, um, we've got a problem. We're losing the polar ice caps, the climate is changing, polluted air is causing increased asthma, and we're gonna have a serious food shortages if we don't change things like yesterday. Science has warned us with empirical evidence that the earth is not doing well. So what should religion's response be? 
Now, too often it has been ignoring or flat out rejecting science. But I think when we do that, we're honestly also rejecting Scripture. Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are humans that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you've made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You've given them dominion over the work of your hands. You've put all things under their feet. Many have taken these verses and those like it and say, humans can do whatever we want. After all, God put us in charge, dominion. Well, this word dominion actually means a little bit different. It's often translated as rule. Humans are to rule over creation. But as many scholars point out, the psalmist here is using God's definition of ruling and barring this phrase that is used to describe a just ruler, a just king, someone like in Deuteronomy 17.20, where the king is called not to exalt himself over others in the community. So don't confuse the word dominion with domination. We are charged by God to take care of creation, not abuse it. God is entrusting us with God's creation. We are not allowed to let our hubris destroy it. When my son was first born, I was up with him a lot at 5 a.m. I knew I couldn't just fall asleep on him. He was a newborn. But I wanted to give my wife a break as she, as she recovered. So I'd take him downstairs, and you know I didn't want him to get overstimulated or see something scary or, quite frankly, have any loud noises in case he did fall back asleep. So I needed something that would keep me awake but also be dull. So I watched the Weather Channel. <laughs> and I noticed... A lot of times, the meteorologists on the Weather Channel would bring up climate change, and not in a preachy kind of way, trying to explain it or anything like that, but really just as this reality. Well, you know, this is something we'll see more with climate change, or climate change is certainly a factor here. Just this acceptance. And I feel like that's where we often get when it comes to taking care of the planet. We just accept the things the way that they are. What does it matter? Who cares? It's going to cost too much anyway. And some folks have a hard time accepting climate change. And if that's you, no, I'm not going to try to convince you otherwise. I'm okay with that. But I think back to those mornings, watching the Weather Channel with my newborn. I have to ask... Why not try to update our electric grid to make it more sustainable? What's the harm in having cleaner air? Why can't we rely less and less on causing explosions underground or blowing the tops of mountains off in order to get our energy? Why not try to be more sustainable? What's the harm in taking care of the earth? Yes, there's a cost. I get that. But when I look at our future... I want life to find a way. And not just any life. I want my son's life, your kid's life, your grandkids' life, your lives to find a way. Because it's worth it. It matters.
Life always finds a way. I just think we should have some say on how it makes it.